right, we're gonna get we're gonna get going here in just a second. So if you want to grab your coffee and find your seats, we'll get started. Oh wow, that worked. Everyone's so quiet. I'm going to go ahead and pray and we'll get started here. Lord, we just thank you that you are a God of great renown, that you are in charge and control and managing and and working with and through our lives to bring you ultimate glory, Lord. We thank you that you do this in spite of working with sinful man and with even spiritual forces that are against you. Lord, you step up and control all things. And and again, it's all for your glory. Lord, I pray that that would be the lesson we learned today, that our lives and what plays out in them are for your glory. And and ultimately, for those that love you, it's for our good. And I pray we'll see that in the life of Job and even in the lives of those around him that do not display wisdom, Lord, that we would see our own selves. And as we look in that mirror and and would strive to be people that are holy, just as you are holy. It's in your son's name we pray these things. Amen. So we're in Job 29, and it's kind of nice because Job 29, 30, 31 is Job restating why he has an issue of what's going on with him. So it's kind of a nice review, although we we were just here two weeks ago. So we don't need a lot of review. But more importantly, these three chapters are the last three chapters of Job talking before God responds to him. Spoiler is this morning, the spoiler alert, I guess, is that, hey, God's gonna respond to what everyone has to say. Everyone except one person. God doesn't respond to one person, and that's Elihu. And we're gonna cover that and maybe look at why God doesn't respond to, to him. But in chapter 29 of Job, we're going to look specifically at at, uh, Job and his situation starting from before Job faced God, or before Job faced the trials that God allowed in his life. We saw a little bit of that in chapter uh, one, just the way Job was a devout man, a religious man, even when it came to his own children, um, even offering sacrifices on their behalf just in case they had sinned. Just the family life of Job was spelled out. But, but here Job goes into a discourse of what his life really looked like. Starting there uh, in, in verse two, oh, that I were in the months gone by as in the days when God watched over me. When his lamp shone over my head and his light, I walked, and by his light I walked through darkness as I was in the prime of my days when the friendship of God was over my tent and the Almighty was yet with me and my children were around me and my steps were bathed in butter and the rock poured out for me streams of oil. What a great picture that is. How good a life do you have? It's like my steps are bathed in butter. That is just awesome. Um, I could handle that life. But we see that this life of, of ease and this life of luxury that he has is nothing more than 
God's hand over his life, the, the friendship of God being over his tent, his tent being his covering, his tent being the place where he resides and provides him protection. And even over the top of the physical protection of shelter, he has God himself and his friendship protecting him and providing for him. It's really a beautiful picture of of what was taking place. And Job understood and gave God the credit for it. And Job responded with righteous living and, and he then goes into, this is the, the righteous living that I had. And again, I'm just going to touch on some of the highlights here. Um, so down in 11 and 12, for when the ear, ear heard, it called me blessed. And when the eye saw, it gave witness of me because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the orphan who had no helper. So he's talking about when, when those in the community actually knew about Job and, and talked about Job and saw Job, they blessed him. And, and the blessing wasn't because of how rich he was or how he had uh, handled his money or invested his funds or managed his cattle or even how he managed his household. It was because of his work in the community to deliver the poor who cried for help and the orphan who had no helper. He was looking out for even those who were outside of his, his sphere of in, direct sphere of influence. He was looking for the ability to help those who needed it most, the poor and the orphan. And then if you jump down to, to 16, we see this, or I'm sorry, down to 18, we see this continue on down to there. And, and he now thinks of, okay, this is the way I lived and this is what, how I thought I would die then. Then I thought I shall die in my nest. I shall multiply my days as the sand. My root is spread out to the waters. The dew lies all night on my branch. My glory is ever new with me and my bow is renewed in my hand. The expectation was that he would live a long time. He would someday retire, get old, and he would be able to sit back and watch the sphere of influence that he had created around him. This, I'm gonna turn 50 this year and this is, this is something that I look for myself, you know, maybe 20 years from now, maybe 30 years from now. This is what I hope to have as I look at my own father and I'm like, this is, this is the type of life I want him to have in his age. And Job had no reason not to expect this. Job, again, had been continuously blessed by God and everything. And he expected that blessing to continue even into his age as he approached death. And ultimately, everyone saw this in Job and knew and understood that God had his hand on him, that Job responded righteously. Verse 21, to me, they listened and waited and kept silent for my counsel. After my words, they did not speak again and my speech dropped on them. They waited for me as the rain and opened their mouth as for the spring rain. I smiled on them when they did not believe in the light of my face they did not cast down. I chose a way for them and sat as chief. I dwelt as a king among the troops and one who comforted the, as one who comforted the mourners. We have this picture of Job where all of society, all the different ranges of society are just waiting for him to send out a tweet and see what he thinks today. They're just waiting to get some sort of response and some sort of interaction with Job. That the, what Job had to say and what Job did was something that all of them looked forward to hearing and beholding. He was at the top of society, but again, he understood that he got there through righteous living and the blessed hand of God on him. By taking care of those who needed, by, by 
going after the wicked, up in verse 17, I broke the jaws of the wicked and snatched the prey from his teeth. The idea that Job here was living as a good, just judge, and in his society, he would have been as a king. He would have been as a ruler. Everyone would have come to him. He would have had a seat at the gates of the city. People would want him to help decide, what's the wise thing I need to do? That's the life Job had before all of this befell on him. And then chapter 30 is contrasted, is the contrast to chapter 29, and we see Job's present state, Job after the fall. I use that term after the fall because I think we see a picture here of, of, of life before the fall in the garden and life after the fall. I think you can make some parallels. I don't think this is speaking specifically to it, but we see, okay, what's Job's state, current state? Where is he at now? What's life like? Verse one, but now those younger than me or younger than I mock me, whose fathers I disdain to put with the dogs of my flock. I love that. This, not only are they younger than me, and we're going to get to youth here in a little bit, but it's, it's the people mocking me are the sons of the fathers who I didn't even think were good enough to sit out in the field with my with my my guardian dogs around my flock. They don't even measure up to, I value the dogs more than these people's fathers. Again, the, the, the prose that are used in Job to describe the feelings that Job has for these people, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty impressive. And then verse, verse 11, talking specifically about the effect of where, these, where his current state, and we won't go into all that, but where his current state is and how he arrived at there, the attacks and disrespect are ultimately because he realizes that God is no longer on Job's side. Verse 11, because he loosed his bowstring and afflicted me, they have cast off the bridle before me. On the right hand, their brood arises. They thrust aside my feet and build up against me in their ways of destruction. I think it's important to note here that Job directly credits God for the situation he is in. Job thinks, and understa- thinks he understands why it is this has happened to him. He's making an assumption about things that is incorrect. And it's good that we touch on this before we get to God's response next week to Job. This is Job's last defense of his righteousness. And up to now, he's wanted to actually be able to stand in court with God and tell God, this was not right what you have done to me. In his own foolishness, he wants to do these things, but he makes it clear even here. If we go down to verse 16 then, 16 to 23, and we can compare this back to the last chapter, 18 through 20, where we talked about how he expected to die. If we read here in verse 16, and now my soul is poured out within me. The days of affliction have seized me. At night, it pierces my bones within me. Days of, or I'm sorry, at night, it pierces my bones within me and my gnawing pains take no rest. By great force, my garment is distorted and binds me about as the collar of my coat. He has cast me into the mire and I've become like dust and ashes. I cry out 
to you for help, but you do not answer me. I stand up and you turn your attention against me. You have become cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. You lift me up to the wind and cause me to ride and you dissolve me in a storm. For I know that you will bring me to death and to the house of meeting for all living. Get a beautiful picture of what is death. It's the house of meeting for all living. It's where we will all gather someday is in death. That's guaranteed for us in this life, if not for the coming of the Lord. But we contrast that with the life that he expected when he was going to die, that his root would spread out to the waters and dew would lie all night on his branches and he would have this glorious life. So Job not only is dealing with the depression and the, the anxiety of losing all of his wealth and his children and his his servants and his cattle and everything before him was taken away. But not only that, but his actual, what his expectation was in his death, what his last years would be like. And he sees that even that has been taken away from him. And, and he looks at, at what God has done and says that this is God's fault and he doesn't understand why God has done it to him. There was a... a Verse there, it binds me about as the collar of my garment. The, the great force, my garment is distorted. Um, I like the, the translation in the Septuagint in the original there. By power, he grasps my clothing. He's being grabbed by God and yanked about and forced into this situation. There's nothing he can do to avoid it. And I'm sure there's there are some of us here who would say that, yes, their lives at times do seem as though God himself is working against them, that everything they do is for naught, even when they're trying to do good. All is lost. But Job here again blames God as being the attacker, not Satan, because Job doesn't have the insight of what's truly going on. And ultimately there in verse 26, when I expected good, then evil came. When I waited for light, then darkness came. Job's expectation is you do what's good and you do what's right and you're rewarded by God. And here the opposite has happened. All hope is lost for Job. He went from the life of blessing and renown and now this is the life that he has. This is the situation that he's in. Again, this is just a recovering or restating of everything else that's come up to the, the, uh, in the book of Job up to this point. So verse 31, we see that Job's view of justice is that it, will, it, should, be, it should be fulfilled in this life. His expectation is, is that, okay, if I do good, good should come of me or good should come to me. His expectation is that if I do bad, bad happens to me. And that's why he is so in such distress because it has not worked out the way he wanted. He's not that different from his three friends who say the same thing and they say, therefore, Job, you've done something wrong or you wouldn't have this life. Your life would not be this bad if it, if, unless you have done something wrong. God punishes people when they do bad things. You're being punished, therefore you must have done something bad. Job has the insight to know I didn't do anything bad. He knows his own heart. He knows what is, he has and has not done. And he's like, I have not done anything to deserve this incredible punishment. And it, it doesn't, 
It doesn't mesh. Those gears don't mesh with his understanding of how life works. And Job's understanding of how life works is is going to get reproved by God here in the next few chapters. And this is just kind of setting it up so we understand where Job's at in this whole thing. Verse one through three, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How could I gaze at a virgin? And, And what is the portion of God from above or the heritage of the Almighty from high? What is it you should expect from God? If I do the right thing, and he gives this example about Um, not only uh, sexual purity, but sexual purity in the mind, not all that different than when Jesus speaks of, of something similar as we covered in Matthew. You don't just commit adultery when you commit adultery, you commit adultery in your mind as well. Job is already there. He's like, I get that. He's well before the time of Christ here and he understands that. He's it's like, I work to keep my mind pure. So what is the portion? What should I get from God for this? What is the heritage that God will give me? It's supposed to be in verse three, is it not calamity to the unjust and disaster to those who work iniquity? Does he not see my steps, see my ways and number my steps? God is totally aware of everything I'm doing. Job understands that. But again, he has this picture of how God works. And what's interesting there in verse three, calamity to the unjust and disaster to those who work iniquity. Job even understands that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. He knows that. He said, you should fear God because calamity comes on you if you're unjust. Disaster comes on you if you work iniquity. So fear God because he will pay you back for your sins. Now Job sees that as happening exclusively in this life. And that's not always how it works. We've already Touched on that last week. If we jump down, it goes on and it, it, it lists a multitude of sins here in this chapter that Job says, hey, if I had done these things, I would get it. I would understand why God would come after me. I would understand, you know, verse 16, if I have kept the poor from their desire, have caused the eye of the widow to fail, or if eaten my morsel alone and the orphan has not shared it. And even there in verse 18, he turns aside because, but from my youth, he grew up with me. The orphan I took care of as though I was his father and from infancy, I guided her. So he's saying, I don't get this. Here's all the things I've done right here. And if I'd done these bad things, then I would certainly deserve the punishment of God. Job is at a loss. Then 24 through 28 there, if I have put confidence in gold and called fine gold my trust, if I have gloated because of my wealth, because my wealth was great and because my hand had secured so much, if I have looked at the sun with, when it shone or the moon going in splendor and my heart became secretly enticed, and my hand threw a kiss from my mouth, that too would have been an iniquity calling for judgment, for I would have denied God above. So these 24 through 28, the specific sin, I, I just picked this, this one out, um, is that of idolatry. If he worshiped gold, if he worshiped possessions, if that's where he put his trust, if his God was the money in his pocket, 
If his reliance on this life was because of the size of his 401k, then that would be one thing. If he looked at nature, if he looked at the sun or the moon and worshiped those things or believed that they controlled life, if he looked to them to see, well, what's gonna happen in my life? I'm gonna read the tea leaves. I'm gonna look to the sun and the, the moon or I believe they're what has power or, or the, the land around us is what gives us. Mother nature takes care of us. Some sort of uh, impersonal fate is what allows us to carry on or gives us good or, or evil. He's like, that's not where I was. I'm not an idol worshiper. I truly understood who God was. Because again, if you do those things, then absolutely you deserve the judgment of God. But Job, as the opposite of that, shows fidelity to God. And there's more examples of that. But at the end... Verse 38, if my land cries out against me and its furrows weep together, if I have eaten its fruit without money or have caused its owners to lose their lives, let briars grow instead of wheat and stinkweed instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. So if Job, Job here is talking not specifically just about the people who tend his land, but also the land itself. If he had even mistreated the land God had given him, he would have deserved punishment. But there is a, there is a responsibility even there that Job has fulfilled. And now the words of Job are ended. And I think that, that last sentence there is very important as we look at the context of where we're at. The words of, words of Job are now done. Job is, is not gonna speak until God speaks. And now we're, we're left with the words of Elihu. And Elihu is going to go all the way through chapter 37. So Elihu gets chapter 32 through 37. And Ethan, he's not here so I can talk about him, texted me this week while I happened to be in the middle of this. And he's like, what's with Elihu? Why does Elihu get so much of the text? Why is he getting here six chapters? It just doesn't make much sense. And I said, well, sometimes what God does through his word is he gives us bad examples. And, and we've talked about this before. How should we handle the bad examples in scripture? The bad examples of people. Anyone want to throw up a suggestion? It's kind of two ways. You guys are so quiet. Well, what's, it's an example for us to either don't do that, don't be like him, don't be like Elihu, but more often than not, when scripture gives you a person whose life is not good or who is making bad decisions, scripture is holding a mirror up to you and your heart. And it is saying, look and find these characteristics in you. And know that this is the thing I'm trying to teach you. You want wisdom, look and find where you're doing things wrong and adjust. So as we look at Elihu, I think one of the main reasons that we have Elihu here is for our good, that we might, again, hold up that mirror and look at our own hearts and see, is this a problem that I have? Come on. Oh, I broke this. I may or may not need. 
It went to the camera so I can take pictures of all of you. And now I can't get it out of the camera. Siri's not happy. There we go. Got it. Sorry about that. Um, So here in 32, we have the introduction of, of Elihu. Elihu speaks a lot. That's the other reason there's a lot of of space put to him. And I think that's also something that we need to look at is as the person who ends up speaking a lot, he just keeps going on and on. Let's start there in verse one, just for the introduction of who this is. Then these three men, men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. But the anger of Elihu, the son of Barachel, the Buzite, of the family of Ram, burned. Against Job, his anger burned because he justified himself before God. And his anger burned against his three friends because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were years older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of the three men, his anger burned. So it seems like the main characteristic we are to get about Elihu is that he's young. That's that's the main thing we're being the main thing we're being taught about. This is what makes him different than the other three, and this is the perspective of the youth. And he already starts with some interesting contradictions in his own mind that he hasn't totally worked out. He's upset at his friends because they've found no answer for why it is Job is being punished and yet his friends are condemning Job. It's like you can't condemn a man if you can't find what's wrong with him. And yet he's also mad at Job because Job says he's done nothing wrong. Job has justified himself before God. Job says, I have done nothing before God. So he's upset at Job for claiming to be innocent and upset at his friends for being mad at him for being innocent. That they can't find what's wrong. So Elihu already is on shaky ground, yet that doesn't stop him. He's still gonna speak. The other thing we should note here in verse two is that he's answering in anger at Job's self-righteousness. As a general rule, if you're about to enter into a discussion between others and you think you have better insight, check if you're angry. If you're angry, probably you're not gonna make a lot of sense. And there's a chance you're not thinking clearly. So the first thing we learn here about him is his youth, but then we also learn very quickly that what follows here is answered in anger. We talked about why he's angry. And honestly, in verses four and five, he held his tongue, expecting those above him to be able to argue Job into his guilt that they would be able to prove Job's guilt. And when they didn't, that's when he is actually upset. He was sitting back watching this, expecting it to play out one way, and it didn't. It's almost as if he's stepping back going, okay, I, expect, I expected this to, to you guys to win the argument with Job. You didn't, now I have to step in. Now me and my youth and my wisdom am the one who has to step in. And it gets him really angry. We have so many opportunities to respond in anger to the things we see when, when 
people's logic is lacking, when their understanding of the world around us is lacking. And even those who we respect sometimes don't act and, and say things the way we want to and we're very quick to jump right in and, and make a comment and try to correct them. They didn't have social media back then, but you can apply some of these things to how you handle those situations as well. And then we see that, yes, this is in fact, Elihu is given to us as an example of youth. And he's gonna, he's gonna show that to us here in verse six. So Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, spoke out and said, so he isn't, he isn't just some some young punk off the street. He is known, his family is known, and you get the feeling here that it's a family that, that would have had some respect, that he, he actually probably did belong there in this conversation, but is one who watches and learns, and now he's stepping outside of that and he's gonna speak. I am young in years and you are old, therefore I was shy and afraid to tell you what I think. That's smart. I thought age should speak and increased years should teach wisdom. Again, he's on the right path here. But it is a spirit in man and the breath of the Almighty gives them understanding. The abundant in years may not be wise, nor many elders understand justice. So I say, listen to me and I will tell you what I think. So what he's saying here is that, look, even if you're old doesn't mean you're wise. True, right? There are some old fools in this world. Absolutely true. And, and also true is that there is a spirit in man and, and if you truly want understanding, it's God that grants you that understanding. But he's using this to explain why it is he's about to overrule his three friends, why he's the one who actually, why he believes he has wisdom and the others do not. Because it is true, what he left out is that in the abundance of years, there does come wisdom. The older you are, the better you understand things. If you've lived through something, you can have an understanding that someone who has not lived through it does not. One of the offices of the church is elder. What's the first qualification of elder? Somebody, eld, they should be eld, right? They should be elder. They should be someone who has experienced and done things and seen things and can lead things. The older women are to teach the younger women. What does that mean? What's an older woman? Somebody define that for me, or dare we? Why are we so quiet? What's an older woman? Yeah, probably have lived a life and done the thing so they can turn and say, hey, I love Alistair Begg's comment on this when he says that, the, I'll butcher this, but, and I won't do it with an accent, so it'll be disappointing for all of you. Um, but he basically says an older woman should be an older woman so that she, he can go to the younger woman and teach him how to live with a rascal like she just had to do for the last 50 years. There's some benefit to age. There's some benefit to understanding and scripture values it. There's a reason that people in the church who are older are supposed to be dealt with with respect as you would your parents. Even if they're wrong, you still deal with them with respect here. And Elihu has lost that. 
It's always, it's always fun as I get older to watch the youth when they get excited about discovering a new doctrine as though it's never been found before. Like when somebody learns about the doctrines of grace and the sovereignty of God and, and it turns out that, that uh, God is actually sovereign over everything and they're like, I can't believe idiots don't believe this. This is crazy. And it's like, well, you were once an idiot. Um, <laughs> But, but it's fun to watch them get excited, but they all of a sudden have this understanding that's beyond anything that anyone before them has come across. And then, and then you watch them respond to people that don't believe as they do in such a rash, brash way that, that completely destroys their witness or does anything to help these people understand the doctrines of grace. And you're like, let's, let's learn some gentleness now. There's things you can still learn in your youth, even when you've been granted so much understanding and knowledge. That's who Elihu is. That's who so many of us. Because Elihu is right that the wisdom that we have and the understanding that we have, your understanding of the gospel yourself is not something that you yourself produced in you. It's something that God gave you. And your years are to be valued as time when God can help you understand and know things, even at a deeper level. And those around you he's placed who have years on them, value their perspective and value what they can see from their experiences. And Elihu's lost that part of it. I know I count the friendship with Dave as as, uh, very precious over this last Oh my gosh, a lot of years, last 15 years. And just, uh, I got to see how he deals with his, chil- his grown children that now my children are entering into that stage of life themselves and what a value that's been to me. And I've seen how he handles uh, the church and, and handles disagreements in the church and handles doctrinal issues and the way he brings people along and teaches them and, and uh, taught me a lot about how I did it wrong in my life. And so there's value to the elderly. There's value that, that word elderly should not be taken as a, as a slight in any way, shape or form, certainly not in the church. And that's what we see Elihu here disregarding because he thinks he knows better than all these men. It's not that these men were right or but Elihu isn't going to make any argument that they haven't already made. That's the other interesting thing here. Because man is not God, we do not have infinite wisdom. We are not eternal beings. We didn't have no beginning. We have no end. We go on for eternity. But that's why we need God to give us our wisdom, and that's why we need years to collect it. We don't instantly have it as God himself does. Elihu has forgotten that. Verse 15 then. Sure I'm in the right spot. Verse 15. They are dismayed. They no longer answer. Words have failed him. These are his friends that attack Job. Shall I wait because they do not speak? Because they stop and no longer answer? I too will answer my share. I will... I also will tell my opinion, for I am full of words. (laughs) Not necessarily good. The spirit within me 
constrains me. I have to talk. Behold, my belly is like unvented wine, like new wineskins. It is about to burst. Let me speak that I may get relief. Let me open my lips and answer. Let, let me now be partial to no one nor flatter any man. For I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. Basically, what I'm about to say, I really can't help but say. And you know what? I'm okay with it if you guys aren't going to like it. And I'm the type of person who's willing to say things even if people don't like it. Now, that hit home for me. For those of you who have known me for more than 20 years know that that's, that's me. I am fine with, I can offend you. That's fine. Um, and I'm righteous for doing so. Because you know what? The truth's in me and it's got to come out. It really wants to be there and you all need to hear it. So just want to be careful. Again, it's, it's, it hold this mirror up to you and see, see if it's true. In chapter, chapter 33 then. However, now, Job, please hear my speech and listen to all my words. Behold, now I open my mouth, my tongue in my mouth speaks. My words are from the uprightness of my heart and my lips speak knowledge. Just so we're clear, chapter 32 was just Elihu introducing himself. Now he's going to get to his words. Now he's ready to talk. Get ready because I'm about to say a lot. Jump down to, to verse 12. Behold, let me tell you, you are not right in this, for God is greater than man. Understand, this is, this is Elihu's understanding of this situation. Why do you complain against him? That he does not give an account of all his doings. Indeed, God speaks once or twice, yet no one notices it. In a dream, a vision of the night, when sound sleep falls on men, when they slumber in their beds, then he opens their ear, the ears of men and seals their instruction that he may turn man aside from his conduct and keep man from pride. He keeps back his soul from the pit and his life from passing into Sheol. So this is, he's going to explain, this is how God talks to man. Ultimately, he's, he's talking to Job in, in the, the misery that Job's in. But verse 19, man is also chastened with pain on his bed and with the unceasing complaint in his bones so that his life loathes bread and his soul's favorite food. His flesh wastes away from sight and his bones, which are not seen, stick out. Then his soul draws near to the pit and his life to those who bring death. One of the ways he's saying God speaks to men is in their illnesses. Better believe when they told me, oh, by the way, there's a mass in your kidney. My heart went, what is God teaching me? What do I need to hear from God here? If there is an angel as mediator for him, one out of a thousand to remind a man what is right for him, then let him be gracious to him and say, deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresher than in youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then he will pray to God and he will accept him that he may see his face with joy and he may restore his righteousness to man. He will sing to men and say, I have sinned and perverted 
what is right and it is not proper for me. He has redeemed my soul from going to the pit and my life shall see light. So that, that little section there starts with, if there is an angel as mediator for him, one out of a thousand. So an angel or a messenger. Well, how does God send us messages? He sends us messages. He speaks in his word ultimately to us. So if God speaks to you, you should listen. This is another way God speaks is what Elihu is saying. Elihu is not wrong. God uses his word to teach us. And when we read things in his word about, hey, you're doing this wrong, you should see that, you should repent, and God will restore you. Verse 29, behold, God does all these things oft times with men to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be enlightened with the light of life. Pay attention, O Job, listen to me. Keep silent and let me speak. Then if you are anything to say, then if you have anything to say, answer me, speak, for I desire to justify you. If not, listen to me. Keep silent and I will teach you wisdom. Be quiet, Job. Speak, Job, but keep, keep silent. Basically, if you disagree with me, be quiet. If you agree with me and you're ready to confess your sin, confess your sin. What an irritating little man. Um... But we see that these, these things are not untrue. And that's one of the challenges, again, we see with Job. It's one of the challenges of proof texting. There are some verses in here that you could take in some passages that you can use to teach somebody. Somebody who's in sin. I had a friend whose father had an affair, an ongoing affair, and got a brain tumor and died. And it's like, well, I know why he got a brain tumor and died. Um, may or may not have been true. Probably was true in his case. He's never repentant. But anyway... It's a tough thing to look at. We don't know all the answers. But growing up, that's what we were told <laughs> by those who knew better. Um, but we see that there are ways that God communicates with man. He's not wrong there. But when you take a single verse or a passage and you say, well, this is what, this is something we can count on and know to be true, well, just understand the context you're drawing it from, please. Chapter 34 then. Elihu is, is continuing on. Let's actually jump down to verse nine. For he said, it profits a man nothing when he is pleased with God. He's saying that's what Job has said. Therefore, listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do wickedness and for the almighty to do wrong. We'd all agree with that. For he pays a man according to his work and makes him find it according to his ways. Surely God will not act wickedly and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Who gave him authority over the earth and who has laid on him the whole world? If he should determine, determine to do so, if he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. Again, Elihu is speaking truth about the fact that God will repay. God sees those who act wickedly in response to them. And surely for him to ignore that would be for him to pervert justice and it would not be good. there. Okay. So Elihu is saying that Job is saying there is no profit in trying to please God. Job has lived this wonderful life where he's gracious to everybody and yet he's suffering these terrible things. Elihu is saying that 
the fact that Job claims to be innocent and is having bad things happen to him is to say that God is somehow complicit in evil. That bad happening to Job must be in retaliation for a bad Job has done, a sin Job has committed, or God is evil. Because God has the power to punish sin. If he does not, then he is not good. Job is being punished, therefore he must have done something evil, or God is not good. Reversing that, if there is a good God, he wouldn't allow evil to prosper. This would make God the author of sin and the friend of the wicked. This is the argument that we have, well, I can't believe there'd be a good God or the Holocaust wouldn't have happened. Or that, well, God created Satan who rebelled and tempted man. Therefore, God is the one who invented all this and brought it along. And therefore, God himself is the inventor of evil. I have a quote here on the next slide from John MacArthur. God is never the cause or the agent of sin. He only permits evil agents to do their deeds, then overrules their evil for his own wise and holy ends. We saw this in the life of Joseph. When Joseph finally meets his brothers as he is second command only to Pharaoh, and has control over their lives, his brothers are scared that he's gonna know who they are and therefore kill them for what he did to the, for what they did to him in his youth. And Job says, you meant that for evil, but God meant it for good. Yes, you are responsible for your evil actions, but God is able to take those actions that you have committed and are responsible for and use them for good to the point where he means to use them for good. He is actually sovereign over even the evil things and, and utilizes them to achieve his ends, his holy ends. And I'll tell you right now, you can have faith that that's how God works and you can believe strongly and you can teach others that how, that's how God works. If you can have understanding of how that works, I'd be happy to hear it because I don't get it. It's an amazing thing that only God can see and do and understand, but we have to say that's how he works. So things like the Holocaust are all within his hands. He's allowing those things to ultimately bring glory. And Elihu doesn't see that. And even Job, I don't think, has a full understanding of that. The greatness of God that he controls these things is something that they're all missing here in this story. Jump down to verse 35 there again, speaking of Job. This is Elihu, Job speaks without knowledge and his words are without wisdom. Job ought to be tried to the limit because he answers like wicked men for he adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. He's saying that not only is Job, he's even worse than the other three friends and his accusations against Job. Job is not only wrong, he had to have do something wrong have had to have done something wrong to deserve this punishment that he's receiving but he's like the guy in jail there's never an innocent man in jail they all say yeah i'm totally innocent um and so he's accusing job now of even not only having done a whole bunch of wickedness in his life that he's hidden from others but he is also now lying about it he's adding on to that wickedness he answers just like one of the wicked men that like you would find in prison 
who claims to be innocent and adds to the lies of their life. Chapter 35, he continues then, and then Elihu continued and said, actually, let's jump down to, to verse four. I will answer you and your friends with you. Look at the heavens and see and behold the clouds. They are higher than you. If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? And if your transgressions are many, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness is for a man like yourself and your righteousness is for a son of man. It's an interesting theology that Elihu has in that what we do, good or bad, doesn't affect God. And there's, again, there's some truth to that. That you can't actually have an effect on God, but what he's saying even further, because God is God, is God he doesn't change. He stays the same regardless of our actions. But he's saying basically, God really doesn't care. He's making an argument almost for deism. He believes that God sets everything in motion, but he doesn't care whether you are wicked or righteous because he is so transcendent. <clears throat> he set this world in motion and here's the rules. The rules are you sin, something bad's gonna happen to you. If you do good, something good's gonna happen to you. That's the way God works. But you yourself, God isn't involved in you as a person. What is the, the term we use for when you do something bad, something bad's gonna happen to you in the future? Karma. karma. So Elihu is, is proclaiming karma here. There's this, there's this, force that is so transcendent beyond us, so separated for, from us. Transcendent would be opposite of intimate. God is so transcendent that what happens here on earth is a result of our actions. We get what we sow. And he's lost the idea that God is actually an intimate God who's, who's acutely involved in, in Job's life, even with what's going on with him now. So there's this idea of karma. Verse 12, there they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. Surely God will not listen to an empty cry, nor will the Almighty regard it. So Job, yours is an empty cry. God's not going to listen to you because you really are guilty. How much less when you say you do not behold him, the case is before him and you must wait for him. And now because he is not visited in his anger, nor has he acknowledged transgression well, so Job opens his mouth emptily and, his, and he multiplies words without knowledge. Job does not have a firm grasp of what's being said or he doesn't have a firm grasp of God. He doesn't understand that God isn't intimately interested in everything going on here. And that, so Job is just being put through this situation because of something he's done previously, because of karma we would say. In chapter 36 there, wait for a minute and I will show you, Elihu's still speaking, that there is yet more to be said in God's behalf. I will fetch my knowledge from afar and I will ascribe righteousness to my maker for truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. So Elihu here now, he's, he's gone to the extreme. He now claims to actually know everything. And he claims to be God's representative in all of this. 
And then he gets kind of confused here. Behold, God is mighty, but does not despise any. He is mighty in strength and of understanding. He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives justice to the afflicted. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but with kings on the throne, he has seated them forever and they are exalted. In other words, if your life is afflicted, then it's because of God. If you are a king on a throne, it's because God set you there. If you're bound in fetters and are afflicted in the cords of affliction, then he declares to them their work and their transgressions that they have magnified themselves. In other words, you deserve to be in cords and afflicted. It's God who's telling you that. He opens their ear to instruction and commands that they return from evil. If they hear and serve him, they will end their days in prosperity and their years in pleasure. But if you do not hear, you shall perish by the sword and you shall die without knowledge. So this is almost in contrast with verse 30 or chapter 35, where he claims that God is completely separate from everything. Now he's claiming that God is intimately involved in everything. So anyone's lot in life is directly related to their behavior, good or bad, because God is intimately involved. You can see that that Elihu is taking all these different things he's learned about God and he's creating this God. None of these things necessarily make sense. He can't bring them all together in one, yet he's trying. Again, spending another 10 to 20 years learning these things would have done him some good, seeing how life actually plays out, but he doesn't. Then verse 22 Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has appointed him in his way? And who has said, you have done wrong? Remember, Job wanted to go to God and tell God, I have done no wrong. I'm ready to bring my case before you. Remember that you should exalt his work of which men have sung. All men have seen it. Man beholds from afar. Behold, God is exalted and we do not know him. The number of his years is unsearchable for he draws up the drops of water and distills rain from the mist which the clouds pour down. They drip upon man abundantly. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thundering of his pavilion? Behold, he spreads his lightning about him. He covers the depths of the sea. For by these, he judges peoples and gives food in abundance. He covers his hands in the lightning and commands it to strike the mark. Its noise declares his presence, the cattle also concerning what is coming up. I love that picture of of rain and the seas and storms and everything. He both uses the rain to provide for man abundantly through their crops, through their animals, but he also uses it to destroy man, just the overarching power of God. Elihu has a, has a handle on those things. But he also says in that, that passage, basically that no one can understand God. He's so far above us. Elihu is is confused. He's schizophrenic, maybe. Chapter 37, then. Up to verse 14. Listen to this, O Job. Stand and consider the wonders of God. Do you know how God establishes them and makes the lightning of his cloud to shine? Do you know the layers of the thick cloud and wonder of the perfect in knowledge? You whose garments are hot when the land is still because of the south wind. Can you with him spread out the sky strong as a molten mirror? Teach us what we shall say to him. We cannot arrange our case because of darkness. Shall it be told him that I would speak? Or should a man say that he would be swallowed up? Basically, 
he's making the argument again that Job, you cannot bring a case against God because you don't have ultimate knowledge. Elihu is not wrong there. It's interesting that Elihu at the beginning of this claim to have perfect knowledge and understanding. God controls all, knows all, and we are nothing when compared to the, just to the expression of his power found in nature. And all that is is an expression of his power. It's not even truly who he is. Verse 23, the Almighty, we cannot find him. He's exalted in power and he will not do violence to justice and abundant righteousness. Therefore, men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise of heart. Direct message to Job. Elihu isn't wrong in all of the things he's teaching, but again, he's grabbed these bits and pieces of who God is and tries to make it into somebody that, uh, that makes sense of what's going on with Job. The problem is nobody knows why it's happening to Job because they weren't there when the devil came up to God and God said, have you considered my servant Job? They don't understand that that's actually what's taking place here. None of them do. And you would think Elihu, after claiming that we don't understand the things of God, would not also say that he has full knowledge and that's where he's wrong. So there's nothing new here that uh, is not already argued somewhere in the book of Job. Elihu brings some of these things to a more fine point and it's almost like a summary of the friends who attacked Job. Elihu is different, different in his youth and he's different in the attitude of arrogance that he brings to the table. What's most interesting, and the second thing Ethan, Ethan asked me as I was studying this is, why is there no response to Elihu? You would think this would be the first one God responds to. Job himself doesn't respond. You read 38 verse one, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. God completely ignores Elihu here as apparently Job does too. Job doesn't respond to him. His friends don't respond to him. The three friends don't object or concur to anything he said. They just ignore him. We could probably look at, and we will as we, as we next week when we are in chapter 38, as God declares who he is, we'll look at the transcendence, transcendence versus the intimacy of God and how that works. But we should probably point out today that God himself is both intimately involved in what we do from a day -to -day, on a day-to-day -day basis as well as transcendent and above all things. When Christ himself was on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me there, quoting Psalm 22, one through five. The problem that Christ is facing on the cross bearing our sins is that God is so totally apart from us. He's not intimately involved with us. He's so totally apart from Christ that there was great pain and suffering involved in that. Yet the intimacy of God is present there as well, is it not? Who is it that is pouring out his wrath on the Savior at that moment for our sins? I think we sing about this this morning. Can it be that I should gain from what God did to Christ on the cross? God is intimately involved with what's happening on Christ on the cross as he pours out his wrath. He doesn't relent nor save Jesus from the cup of his own wrath for our benefit. In that moment, God is transcendent. 
He's overall, but he's intimate. He's intimately involved in that act. And God on the cross himself taking our burden, taking our sin, intimately involved with us. We have both a transcendent God who made all things and is in control of all things. And we also have an intimate God who lives within us, compelling us to do what is good as those who believe. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for Job and I thank you for Elihu and as one who struggles with controlling his tongue and believing he's right all the time. Lord, a good lesson for me and those who are tempted to sin in the way I do at times. Lord, we thank you that you are over all things, you're in control of all things. Lord, we also humble ourselves to know that you're the one who actually understands understands and sees all things. And you're the one that we should allow to work and just have faith that you will work things out. If not in this life, then in the next, Lord. But ultimately, those who serve you just as your son did, those who are obedient to you, those who speak the words that you spoke just as he did, receive the ultimate reward, Lord. They live in a life that transcends this life as well as a life that has an intimate relationship with you that someday, Lord, without these mortal bodies as we're given new ones, we can be with you and enjoy you forever. It's in your son's name we pray these things. Amen.